May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused money before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Good evening and welcome to Pello Talk in this special live episode. I'm interviewing uh, Mark Hornshaw. He's one of the candidates for the Liberal Democrats, but he's actually so much more. And in that more capacity, I'm interested in talking to him tonight. He's also one of the authors of the Liberal Democrats uh, policy platform called their Freedom Manifesto, which is an exciting read of 10 different points. I'm going to get him back uh, hopefully before the election, to talk about the education policy, which he specifically uh, wrote on. But in the capacity that he's uh, going to be insightful and helpful to voter education tonight, it's his capacity as a university lecturer for first-year students in the field of economics. Now, economics is something that I love reading about. I'm an amateur student of uh, and um, have read some of the great books and, and nowhere near enough, so I still need lots of help, like most voters. Uh, but I, I know enough to recognise when there's a policy that makes sense and a policy that doesn't. Uh, I know enough to know when a policy is asking for big government interventions, the kind that most conservatives uh, and uh, classical liberal and libertarian voters are opposed to. If you've been protesting mandates and lockdowns in the last two years, uh, then you're a small government voter. You don't want big government. Like me, you think government is the pandemic uh, and viruses are a natural part of the ecosystem, but they should be kept under control and as manageable and small as possible. Uh, that's the real pandemic we need the cure for. Uh, so, um, that's never been more aptly demonstrated than in the in the last few years where government's been getting out of control and their policies have been killing tens of thousands of people, if not millions of people around the world. And there's that's not um, hyperbole. Uh, that's that's very demonstrated studies have been showing that. Uh, one of my favorite guests maybe a year ago now, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, but I think his name's Simon. Uh, but he is a professor of economics again in uh, Canada, and he basically observed that lockdown policy is the worst public policy failure of Canada and, and obviously of the Western world and people who had very similar uh, policies. Lockdown is the worst policy failure uh, in peacetime in Canadian history. Uh, now, he also helped me understand that Economics isn't just the study of economies, but it's actually the, the study of models of predictive behavior and, and aligning those predictions and models to observable reality. Uh, and we knew beyond any shadow of a doubt by September 2000, uh, certainly people like me said, hey, first principles, this was never okay from the beginning. And then three months later, there was strong evidence to suggest that the government overreacted. But after six months, there was more than enough empirical data and, and hard evidence uh, that lockdown policy was the worst policy failure of all time. Big government is a huge, huge problem. And so we need to be smarter as voters to figure out exactly when we can find 
those big government clues in the policies that uh, are being um, announced and promoted. Because I tell you, even some of the right-wing, uh, pro-freedom, freedom-friendly minor parties that are asking for our vote this year have some, some big government policies amongst their anti-mandate policies. And anti-mandate's a great start. But if you truly want freedom from government, then you need the smallest government possible. Another metaphor I use to illustrate that I, I don't hate government. I'm not an anarchist, but I am a small government uh, Christian. Uh, as a Christian, uh, that's my political identity. Whatever else I am is coincidental, but I choose to be Christian. And, and the small government aspects of that is that God designed boundaries for government, proper places and functions for it. And another metaphor that I use to demonstrate that is a blackberry bush. Uh, when I grew up in country farming areas of New South Wales, uh, blackberry bushes were something that we used to do uh, on, a, on a family day trip on the weekend. We'd go to a farm, we'd pick blackberries, we'd go to the dam and, and uh, catch some yabbies and have blackberries and yabbies by the dam for lunch. It was a wonderful day out. But blackberries are a huge problem for farmers. They're essentially a noxious weed that just grows and grows and grows and expands in size and they're thorny and the cattle can't eat them and they're prickly and, and they're a great place for rabbits and foxes to hide and uh, they're really not at all conducive to farming the land and, and making the land productive and enjoyable. It's blackberries or nothing when there's a blackberry bush in your paddock. And so Australians have really taken a concerted effort over the recent decades since I was a kid to eliminate and get blackberries under control exactly how government should be done. There is good fruit to be gained from government, but they need to be kept small, contained, under control. Otherwise, they become thorny, overgrow, and crowd out any other productive, useful space for human existence. It's a powerful metaphor if you think about it. Well, let me introduce Mark Hornshaw, um, who basically explained to me that he has to uh, get the students who come to him in their first year of uh, university and undo the damage of things they might have learned in high school, uh, which is, um, I guess, something we should be grateful for if, if he gets the chance to educate them properly. Mark, welcome to Pello Talk this evening. Thanks so much, Dave. It's great to be on. Uh, just a couple of comments on your intro there. Yeah, the people who mandated us and, and who um, had terrible policies on COVID are the same people who have run up the debt and who've um, messed up the economy. Um, yep. If we don't trust them in one area, we shouldn't trust them in the other, exactly as you're saying. Um, and um, also I'll just say a lot of Christians and conservatives tend to focus on social issues, and I can understand why, the culture war sort of issues, and um, those are obviously of great concern to Christians. Um, economics can be kind of a little bit too difficult and we'll just put that aside and we'll just say, well, that's uh, too hard to understand and we'll, we'll let someone else deal with the economics, but I'll focus on the social issues. Yep. But if we don't um, understand and focus on economics, those other issues are just going to be so much worse because the, if you're under financial pressure, then um, you're even more at the mercy of the social engineers. And, uh, you know, financial pressures is the number one reason why couples break up. Right. Uh, and, and so it is important to have, um, you know, a strong economy. And, it, and so it is important to understand the, the danger that we face from people who want to mess up the economy. 
That's right. Uh, I think um, to that end, um, government has become an idol. Uh, government, statism, I, I've said a lot over the last two years, statism is idolatry. The, the replacing of, of God's authorities and the things that God ordained, uh, self-government, church government, family government, replacing those things with uh, statism, with big government, is idolatrous because it's putting your preferred order of things above what what God ordained. A government has no authority to tell a parent uh, the values that they should be indoctrinating their children with, pastoring, discipling their children with. That's the parents' realm of authority. Government has no right to be telling uh, churches when they should and should not open their doors for the preaching of the gospel, communion, fellowship, corporate worship, uh, the ministry of the body to each other. Um, that's that's exactly what. Um, civilization needed over the last two years was hope and a place of, of uh, relief and, and social support and, and structures. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when we have people uh, who are generational welfare recipients, uh, people who are disempowered and entirely dependent on government, that's when the government is able to bribe voters with something commonly called pork barreling. Uh, which Proverbs very clearly speaks against uh, as, as a corruption to a nation, um, when people are entirely dependent on the government, they literally take their eyes off God. They literally lose all sense of, of personal responsibility. And government can be corrupted and lead us down paths of injustice and and other kinds of, of these social uh, perversion of these social issues that we're talking about because they get a blank check for power based on their willingness to line people's pockets. We need to understand the economic drivers because this isn't just about economies and and big-level intellectual thinking. It's actually about the motivation of human behaviour every three years at election time. Um, And if we are not empowered to see through their confusion and their marketing and their spin and their deceptions... Um, then we're going to be taken captive by these these hollow philosophies that they pump out. Um, let's talk about, I guess, the big headline tonight uh, that I, I want to keep coming back to. Um, and you might want to start with some quotes or, or bring them in later. But uh, the concept is that inflation is theft. It's a great quote. Um, and, yeah, let me re- read out a quote from John Maynard Keynes saying exactly that. Uh, It's quite a long quote, bear with me. Um, He says, Lenin is said to have declared that the best way to destroy the capitalist system is to debauch the currency. By a continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate, there's your theft, secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. By this method, they not only confiscate, but they confiscate arbitrarily. And while the process impoverishes many, it actually enriches some. Just think of those people who, uh, you know, their house prices just doubled. Mm-hmm. The side of this arbitrary rearrangement of riches strikes not only at security, but at confidence in the equity of the existing distribution of wealth. Those to whom the, the system brings windfalls beyond their deserts and even beyond their expectations or desires become profiteers who are the object of the hatred of the bourgeoisie whom the inflationism has impoverished, not less than that of the proletariat. As the inflation proceeds, 
and the real value of the currency fluctuates wildly from month to month, all permanent relations between debtors and creditors, which form the ultimate foundation of capitalism, become so utterly disordered as to be almost meaningless, and the process of wealth getting degenerates into a gamble and a lottery. Lenin was certainly right, says Keynes. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all of the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. Now, wow. Keynes wrote that in 1922. Keynes's general theory on um, uh, employment and money and interest came out in 1936. But Keynes basically then spent his career advocating for that very inflationism that he'd already said 14 years earlier was just to destroy the capitalist system. Keynes was quite a hateful person. Keynes praised the Nazis. Um, Keynes was someone who people might not know this, but um, but it, it's it's there. Um, used to brag about going to Tunisia where he could get room and boy. That's what he used to pay for in Tunisia. You can figure out room what that is. Room and boy. Room and boy. Yeah. In other words, he's a pedophile. He's a pedophile. Um, wow. But Keynes's system has been put into practice in basically all governments around the world um, over the last hundred years. And it's a process of doing that very thing, inflationism, so that some people get rich, other people feel that they're unfairly treated, it brings hatred, it brings class division, and, and ultimately destroys the capitalist system. Mm. Um, he was one of those Fabian socialists who, who wanted to... Um, you know, didn't, didn't want um, the sort of revolutionary communism, but wanted to bring it in um, more slowly, you know. So we're stuck with a Keynesian system where, um, let me just talk before we talk about um, more about inflation, about what an interest rate is. Because I think this is another thing that people are confused on. We're sort of come to learn that interest is just some annoying thing that banks charge you because they're just mean. And it wouldn't right. it be good if they just didn't. Right. Yeah. If we yeah. could just borrow money for free, that would be great. So it's the price on your credit card or your home loan or your personal car loan. Yeah, but it just seems like a price that you pay for, for nothing. Uh, well, yeah. for, it can vary. Your credit card might be 20% and your home loan might be 3% and your personal loan might be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But the, what uh, in, in, like interest is an actual price. That's what we need to understand. That, that a price of anything is a signal. If the price of something is high, more people will want to sell it. If the price of something is low, more people will want to buy it. The price communicates something about um, scarcity um, and, and tells people what to do more of and what to do less of. Inflation is also a price, but it's the price of waiting or of not having to wait. It's the mutually agreed price between someone who borrows and someone who lends. Someone who wants to bring forward their purchases, so they need to borrow, or someone who, who is prepared to wait, and so they will lend. And they mutually agree on a, a value for that. So if I offered you $100 now, um, or 90 in one year's time, you might say, okay, well, I'll take the 90 in one year's time. That means we've agreed on a 10% interest rate between us, say. So there's, there's a reason that there's this natural rate of interest. Mm -hmm. 
if if interest was just zero, well, everybody would just want to borrow and no one would want to save, right? Um, that would be impossible in a free market. For that would mean we we have we place for interest to be zero naturally all on its own without interference would be pretty much impossible. It means can I I'll give you a hundred now or I'll give it to you in a thousand years. Do you mind which one? And you say no, either way, same to me. Well, that's not a realistic situation, right? For interest to be right. zero, there's yep. always going to be some price of waiting or not having to wait. In a society where people were, let's say, very patient, very future oriented, they, they they're they're willing to wait because they'd rather have more in the future. They'd rather leave an inheritance to their kids, or they'd rather have um, a better retirement. So if everybody in society or most people were very patient like that, lots of people would be savers uh, and interest rates would be naturally low because the supply of savings would be high in that sort of society. If you imagine right. a different sort of society where, say, everybody is a drug addict or, or lots of people are, or lots of people are, are very much have to have their, their fix right now, well, who's saving in that society? Not many people. They all want to borrow. And so interest rates in that society would be very high because loanable funds would be quite scarce. And, and mm -hmm. so, so an interest rate tells you something. An interest rate then tells producers what to do. So in a society where people are saving, like the first one, there'd be plenty of saved funds available to, purchase, to, to start long lines of business that take time. Like interest, when you're a business, certain kinds of business are more reliant on on, on, on borrowing for a long production period, like say building an apartment building or building a new bridge or road or a new right. factory, things that, that or mining, things that are sort of yeah, high in up in production take a long time. And so interest is a big part of the cost. But in that first society, those things would be profitable. They'd be affordable because there is savings. Because people are willing to wait, then those long production processes will pay off one day. But in the other kind of society where everybody is very impatient, where interest rates are high, what sort of business would you start there? You'd have to start a business that caters to people's immediate needs. You couldn't start a business that has a long payoff because it would just be not, not profitable. Yep. And so the business person is forced to cater to how people are, um, either long processes that take time or, or very immediate consumer goods. An example of that um, that I know from TV, where I get uh, some of my education, is uh, when you see these renovating shows and they're, they're doing a, a fixer-upper and, and flipping a house and they're renovating it, they've borrowed a sum of money from the bank to do it, and then all of a sudden there's an unpredicted delay, unforeseen delay. It might be the, the local council or county has has um, held up permits and, and won't let them proceed with the plumbing work and, until such and such mm. is is sorted out and then they have to wait two weeks and because they've got a hundred or two hundred or five hundred thousand dollars on loan at an interest rate which is costing them money every day the cost of that delay is literally two weeks of that interest rate which might put up their their budget by five or ten thousand dollars so some amount that they're very uncomfortable with and and so uh, that's the principle that you're talking about in place that i can see where uh, they need to get this done quickly because the cost of of the debt is too high. The cost of the interest. Exactly. 
Now, central banks step in. Central banks, like the Reserve Bank of Australia, when they say we're lowering interest rates, what do they mean? When the central bank says we're, we're going to lower the cash rate, it's just been raised slightly, but it's still at a record low. It was mm -hmm. at 0.1%. What are they literally doing? Well, they're creating more money. They're inflating. They're pushing out more and more money because the, the interest rate that we naturally agree on between borrowers and, and lenders is not going to be anywhere near 0.1%, right? Mm. There'd be no savers at that level. Right. So for it to be artificially pushed down to that level, they've got to just create more and more money so that anyone who wants to borrow can be satisfied, not through other people having saved, but just through the RBA creating more money and the yep. whole banking system. And this is the situation that, that, that we have where interest, instead of being a natural price that's agreed on between borrowers and lenders, it's an artificial price where the borrowing is just satisfied. And so you borrow $2 million for a new home. Who saved $2 million? Nobody. But the RBA just created that money uh, and put it into the banking system. How, is, uh, feel free to bookmark this question if you want to come back to it later. But how does the RBA create money out of thin air? All right, let's come back to that question. Okay. So, well, they, they just write it onto their books. They just literally put it into the banking system. And the banks then pyramid their own um, monetary expansion because of fractional reserve banking, but we won't get too technical here. Mm -hmm. But the, it's they put it into the banking system. So inflation helps those who are connected with the banking system. Um, you end, uh, we'll, we'll, let's circle back to that. Let me just stay on my so point you about just, interest you just said inflation when you're talking about the Reserve Bank, the central bank, adding money onto the books because they felt like it was necessary. Um, that's the that's, same thing then? Inflation, well, printing more money? The, the traditional definition of inflation is the expansion of the money supply. Mm -hmm. What? The, let's come back to the definition of inflation too. But the traditional definition is inflating, expanding the money supply. Mm -hmm. And so the Reserve Bank does that every time they're holding interest rates below their market level. Mm -hmm. Now, the trouble is what that does. When you have, instead of, when I'm comparing those two societies, one with a naturally high interest rate and one with a naturally low interest rate, either way, producers must serve the needs of consumers. Um, if interest rates are low naturally, resources are freed up from consumer goods industries because people aren't going to the shops, they're not going to restaurants, they're patient, they're waiting, they're saving for their retirement. And so resources would be freed up to go into investment industries, into production of um, machines and, and buildings and construction and things. But in a society that where people are very now oriented, well, the business resources would have to move into retail and things like that. But either way, the resources move to where customer demand is. But when you have this artificial situation, the people providing building apartment buildings and mining equipment and things and the long-term needs, they see this, they, they get access to cheap funds to borrow. And so they're drawing on more of society's resources. But consumers are still going to the shops and buying new TVs and going to restaurants. They're still living it up because they haven't saved. 
they're still spending. And so the resources are just now being stretched in two directions. They're going to the investment industries of like the capital goods industries, I should say, and the consumer goods industries at the same time. But there aren't twice as many resources. It's just an illusion. The resources that we have are just being stretched in too many ways and there's going to be a payback. Yep. There's going to be a consequence. The consequence is the recession. Can, so we, can we define what you mean by resources? Are we talking about currency or... Um... No, physical things. Like when you see that the, the price of timber has gone up and that, um, you know, um, people can't finish their housing projects mm. because there's not enough physical resources. There's not enough plumbers. There's not enough timber. There's just right. not enough physical resources. It looked like all of these things were going to be profitable during the boom when we were under this illusion that there were more resources than there were, mm. in the bust, we realised we were fooled, right? We were fooled by low interest rates during the boom. We've been in this cycle of, like, this boom cycle for, like, you could say, depending on how you measure it, 14 years, right. where, where we're now seeing that we were duped, that we couldn't all afford $2 million houses, that we yep. couldn't start all of these new apartment buildings. Yep. There's a book called The Skyscraper Curse, that every time that there's a, a record-breaking skyscraper built, it's, the project is started during a boom and finished during a recession, right? Every single one, going back to the 1800s. Wow. Yeah, the, book called, the book's called The Skyscraper Curse. Very interesting. Hmm. And so this, this artificial boom is caused by artificially low interest rates, but everybody thinks it's fun during the boom. Everybody thinks they're, flip, they're flipping houses and they think, this is great. I'm going to get more renovations on my house. I'm going to get a new TV. Uh, and the government even tells people, we need to get spending up. Go and spend. This is our way out of this, this fix. Go and spend more. And so it's fun during the boom because we're being tricked. The recession that follows is not fun, but it's reality. Um, and another metaphor, this is used by an economist called... Mises, Ludwig von Mises. He said, imagine a, a builder, and this, this builder is like a metaphor for the whole economy, but the builder has 10,000 bricks, but he thinks he has 20,000 bricks. With 10,000 bricks, he could build a house in a certain configuration that, with 10,000 bricks, but instead he starts laying out the bricks in a much wider footprint that would need 20,000 bricks to finish because he's under this delusion somehow. Now, as he starts laying out the bricks, um, the more he continues on this way, the more he's going to waste when he finally realizes what's going on. If you see that the builder has already laid out 100 bricks in this wrong configuration, you could stop him and say, look, come to reality. You don't have 20,000 bricks, you've only got 10,000. You've wasted 100 of them now, so you've only got 9,900, but you could still build a decent house with that. If you thought, no, the way I'm going to help this builder is by keeping him under the delusion. I'm going to keep putting more mirrors around his piles of bricks so to keep him thinking because the way to help the economy is just to get builders to build anything. This is Keynesian economics, um, the broken window fallacy. Just spend money on anything at all. It doesn't matter what it is. And so just trick this builder into continuing on his merry way. Well, if he lays his last brick in this wrong configuration, he's going to have to destroy the lot and be left with nothing. Can you see the longer he 
persists in his delusion, the more he's going to waste. And so the best thing to do is to not inflate the boom. But if the boom is being inflated, the best thing to do is to stop it as soon as possible rather than continue it on. The sooner you stop the boom, um, the, the less bad the recession that follows will be. But the longer the boom goes on, the worse the recession will be. So uh, uh, another little quote on that from Hayek, to combat the depression by a forced credit expansion is to attempt to cure the evil by the very means which brought it about. <laughs> so we see, um, you know, some people saying, oh, the, the, what we need now, now that we've had this boom, this housing boom, and that if interest rates rise, it might hurt some people and they might find it harder to pay the interest. So let's just have a policy that takes political control of the RBA and forces um, home loan rates down to 3% for the next five years. That's a policy of one of the parties. Right? Um, the trouble is, it's going to make it worse. It means you, you're just going to try to keep the delusion going, keep inflating. To hold interest rates down to 3% means you have to just inflate, print even more money. If you print even more money, you're going to inflate the value of those houses even more. Um, and then after five years, you're going to have an even bigger crash. That's what occurs to me, is that if we interfere in the price of mortgages, then it's only a delay of the inevitable. And, and so whatever the price should have been, when the five-year gap uh, catches up to it, um, the amount of correction at that stage will be a much bigger step up than is currently needed, which, um, you know, people may have the time to adjust to. Because, I mean, I used to be a finance broker. And one of the, many lives ago, one of the things I, I understood um, just statistically is that whether my clients were on 50 or 100 or 150 or $200,000 a year household income, because um, I, I also helped them with, with their budgeting. Everybody, and this wasn't just my clients, but across Australia, the average was um, that Australians spent 103% of their annual income, whether they were on a big average or low income. We, we just always figure out how to spend all of what we have and a little bit more and then when we have a big pay cut for whatever reason, we, we actually learn how to adapt our lifestyle um, and still spend just a little bit more than we earned through, I, I guess, credit. Um, but I, I guess my, the point, the moral I learned from that is we're all happy and all able to um, adapt to the incomes we're on when we have to discipline ourselves through a lack of choice and a lack of options. And, and so I think people will be better able to adapt to the changes they have to make if it's incremental over the next five years rather than all of a sudden at the end of five years. Yeah. So the RBA wants to, and they've said that, you know, we need to lift interest rates. And everyone says that's just because you're mean, right? You're just be, the RBA is just being mean to us and making us pay more. Um, if the RBA doesn't raise interest rates, we have to hyper in, they have to just allow hyperinflation. You have one or the other. Neither of them is fun. Just my last little quote, I know I've given you a few, um, but from Mises again, the boom cannot continue indefinitely. 
there are two alternatives. Either the banks continue the credit expansion without restriction and thus cause constantly mounting price increases and an ever-growing orgy of speculation, which, as in all other cases of unlimited inflation, ends in a crack-up boom and the collapse of the money and credit system, in other words, a Venezuela situation, a hyperinflation, mm -hmm. or the banks stop before this point is reached, voluntarily renounce further credit expansion, and thus bring about the crisis. The depression follows in both instances. It's not like one gives you a free lunch. You can have a, um, they can raise interest rates and there'll be a recession, or they can not raise interest rates. There'll be hyperinflation and still a recession. Yep. There's got to be. Are there be any examples in history where um, these kind of things have happened side by side where, uh, you know, same context, same period of time, governments interfered and and there was a bad results government kept their hands off and there was bad but not as bad results good question yes the forgotten depression of 1920 to 21 was actually deeper than the great depression um uh, there was it was a, a, a massive um drop that, that that inflated during world war one uh you know the government had, had used inflation to um, to finance the war um and um there needed to be a payback there needed to be um but the but it was a, a deep recession in 1920 but it was over in less than a year so we never refer to the the great depression of 1920 um it was over so quickly but governments didn't um the, uh, basically they didn't come up with any of the uh, kind of interventions that they did during the great depression of the, the 1930s they actually cut government spending they actually instead of increasing it they just cut it they yeah. they um kesho says doesn't everything the government do make things worse yes. uh, i think kesho, that's generally true and and that's why you want to examine freedom party policies that have less government in intervention involved yeah so then you get to the great depression that was kicked off in 1929 but this time the government so-called threw everything at it right in america that is in australia not so bad um joseph lyons was um was a, a kind of a did the opposite and um uh, was was pretty good in australia but in america we had um roosevelt and um and hoover who both of them um wanted to try out all of their new interventions all of their new tricks all of their their um wage controls and price controls and stimulus packages and government programs and public works and um, and what happened the great depression went on for basically a decade and a half uh, and everything they did made it worse yeah there was a depression within the depression in in the 90, in 1933 i think i recall thomas Sowell saying about the great depression um the late 20s and early 30s that yeah. that um it had already started to fix itself before the government decided to intervene and they made everything 10 times worse and 10 times as long as as it was going to be at the end of that decade exactly um hmm. and they and they only had to look back to 1920 to see where the government had um, cut spending and so this this is uh, bring, bring us back to the current day the government has run up um, closing towards a trillion dollars of debt with basically nothing to show for it. 
Mm. I mean, during COVID, did they build any new hospitals or did they, you know, that they weren't already going to build? Did exactly they... right. The amount of billions of dollars they spent on yeah. keeping people home from work, yeah. um, they could have they could have built 10 gold-plated hospitals around Australia, an yeah. actual solution to a pandemic yeah. instead of paying people to stay home and do nothing and, and get depressed okay. and fat. But when the government is in so much debt, this is another reason why the RBA will be tentative about raising interest rates because the government's the biggest debtor. The government mm. can't afford it either. They're, they're, they don't only live, only spend 103% of their income. Yeah. Uh, they're even worse than, than, than kind of, <laughs> you know, the worst of us. And so um, they're in so much debt that if interest rates rise, the government will find it hard to pay the interest. And, and one of the biggest line items of the budget will just be interest on the government yep. debt. Um, and so what? So basically, what, while the government gets a, something for nothing, it seems, by deficit spending, um, the rest of us get nothing for something. Right? There's, it's not like the, the government would like to say, you'll be looked after, everyone will get free stuff, the consequence won't fall onto anybody, um, but of course those are lies. The consequence we're seeing the consequences now in the form of higher prices. I, I didn't. Um, I left a little point that I noted down. What is the definition of inflation? It used to mean the expansion of the money supply. Now there's no word for the expansion of the money supply. Inflation has come to mean a statistical measure, the consumer price index whatever that goes up by, that's the inflation rate. That's just one of the consequences of inflation. But now we, the, the word has been sort of uh, manipulated to mean only that one consequence. So in 2020, in, that one, in 12 months, the money supply was increased by 27.5%. Just wrap your head around that. That's, a, that's how much inflation there was, you could say. In, in the last how long? In, in one year, in, in the year 2020, there's been even more since then, but just in that one year, 2020, there was a 27.5% increase in the M1 money supply, while wow. the consumer price index that's measured and reported... And, and the M1 money, money supply is all the money available in all the bank accounts in all of Australia. Yes, all our bank accounts. Um, that was increased by 27.5%. Of course, that didn't go to the poor. But it went mostly to people that already owned assets, like Keynes was saying, some get rich unfairly, right? Yeah. Um, but the, um, and, and to government spending, people close to government. But the measured inflation rate was 1.4%. And so the RBA is able to say there's no inflation going on. That's what they were oh, saying in 2020. They were saying, we're going so to keep the rates low. Increased by a quarter. 27.5%, yeah. and yet the RBA said inflation only increased by a handful of percents. 1.4%. 1.4%. And that's, that's because not, that's the price of, that's the that's CPI? Are they confusing CPI with inflation? Well, the, well they've come to, to, CPI is now what inflation has come to mean. Wow. Just but the CPI that year hadn't increased yet, Um because they're only considering some goods. House prices aren't included in CPI. So house prices can go up 20% and it doesn't affect it. And rent. 
Yeah, and rent. Um, well, rent is included, but um, but CPI um, is a is is just a, st a statistic, and it's not a very good one. Hmm. And and so now we're seeing CPI rise. Right now we're seeing just the price of petrol and the price of food and the price of ordinary consumer goods rising. Wow. Uh, but the inflation has already happened. Now we're just seeing it played out in consumer prices. The, the, uh, but if you remember back to 2020, the RBA was saying we've got to get inflation up. It's too low. Yep. And we're going to have to keep interest rates at their low level until at least 2024. They yep. were actually saying that back then. And now let's, um, let's just take a breath um, at, at this just thought. I want to just uh, let everybody know I'm talking with Mark Hornshaw. He's a candidate for the Liberal Democrats, but more importantly, he's an economics lecturer. And um, what we're doing tonight is just providing a bit of voter education um, around the concepts of economics, the basic concept, concepts that we need to understand so we can peer behind the curtains and uh, decode the policies that we're being um, spoon-fed in slogans because it's a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced than that. And you need to understand when what the parties are proposing is actually worse than what we've got it now, uh, making government bigger and not actually solving the problem or, or giving us more of what caused the problem. Uh, and, and so that's no solution at all. If you have any questions, um, this is a topic I don't want to go faster than the audience on. Um, and if we need to do it over 27 videos, then then so be it. Or if we just tackle what we can do tonight and, and not bite off more than we can chew, please ask your questions. Um, don't be afraid. There's probably uh, 200 people thinking the same thing as you. Be the first to ask um, so we can deal with it. I'll ask Mark. We'll put it on the screen. We'll, we'll get it there. Any other comments or questions you've got as well? They are welcome. Um, so let's. We're not going to do personal financial advice tonight, um, as as much as we would like to uh, about where the best place is to put your money, etc. We're just trying to get a grasp on economic um, definitions and and understanding, um, so that we don't end up uh, like Venezuela. If you'd like to be a supporter, um, let help us fight inflation and donate ten twenty dollars per month. That would be a big help. Head to goodsource.news forward slash support or click on the support button when you get to the website, goodsource.news, and that'll help us to bring you more programs like this. Uh, now, Mark, I actually uh, have forgotten the exact topic that we were on, but um, do you have it in your head what, what you're about to say next? Yeah, well, the, the people who like to inflate will always find an excuse to do so, right? Right. They will, they will inflate to the maximum of their ability because they can hand that money to their cronies and they can um, pay, off, pay for government programs. And then when we see the consequences, like we're seeing now, now we're finally seeing pr consumer prices rising very steeply. We find that in 2021, they, they, and we only find out after the year's finished, but we find that they've been rising um, much faster than the RBA was saying. Then they say, oh, this inflation just came from somewhere. We don't know where. Maybe it's just because businesses are just getting greedy and putting up their prices, or maybe it's because of Putin. Or there's always excuses for why there's a rise in CPI, but it's never blamed on the actual cause, which was the inflation that was going on already. 
Um, inflation of monetary supply, do you mean? The inflation of money, money supply, which there's now no word for anymore. Yep. Um, and, and that's used to push down interest rates. When you push down interest rates, everybody is stretching the resources in too many directions. And when they're stretched in too many directions, we, you, uh, you, there's a reckoning to pay. Yep. So now we're, we're getting nothing for something. Now we're, we're, the theft has already gone on. The government's already stolen from you through inflation. And now you're just um, realising that your house was robbed. Yep. But when you see the actual price rises in the shops, and so you realise that your pay packet doesn't go as far as you thought it did, that's, that's like coming home after your house has been burgled and seeing the damage that's already done. Um, so I, I suppose a, a topic that we need to, to, to cover is what can be done about it. What, what Let me ask you a question to lead into that, um, that area. Um, Judah asks, could mining tax on exports cover a fixed 3% interest rate? Uh, it's it's another um, silly policy, in my opinion. Um, the party that's calling for a new mining tax says that it'll be used to pay off the debt. So it, it can't be used to pay off the debt and to make university free and to make houses um, uh, have low interest rates and so on. It can't be used in, in all these directions. The other thing with a, a mining tax, if mining companies could charge 15% more, they already would. So Clive Palmer is out saying China will pay that, Asia will pay. We'll put a 15% tax on iron ore. I know about this because I'm a miner, um, that the customer will pay. Well, he would know <laughs> because he's in business that if you could charge the customer 15% more, you already would, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you wouldn't wait for the government to do it through a tax. Every business person knows that you can put your price up, but you'll get less sales, right? Yep. And so... Uh, my you, understanding is the price of, of our um, uranium, et cetera, uh, iron ore, that um, he's wanting to uh, put a, a levy on, uh, a fundraising levy on, is already the same price as um, other mining nations which supply the um, Asian China markets uh, and, and so our prices would just be more expensive than those nations. Yes, and but but still we would still sell some because it would be needed. The world price would would rise a bit, but less would be bought. And mm -hmm. um, and so you, there's no free lunch that way. Um, but I don't think that that is the policy to use that to make house prices cheap. The policy was to use that to pay off debt, I believe. A trillion dollar debt, yeah. Yeah, um, we're making house prices cheap is done by taking political control, so not house prices, house home, home loan interest rates, mortgage rates, yep. is done by taking political control of the RBA. Instead of the RBA being this sort of, you know, supposedly neutral body of experts, having the politicians in charge. Now, I don't like having these so-called neutral experts in charge either. I don't think they, that they're that they're particularly good people, but having politicians in charge, um, theoretically, you think, oh, we could vote them out. That's more democratic. It's more like putting the people in charge. But people always vote for free stuff, right? People, and so politicians always win elections by promising more free stuff. Yeah, yeah. And democracy is uh, two two lions and a goat voting on who's for dinner. 
Yes. And so the when politicians do take political control of central banks, they always invariably make it even more reckless. And this, this was the situation we had in the 1970s um, where the, the, the RBA was kind of, um, you know, leaned on by politicians for political gain to, to make it easy for governments to borrow. Yep. Um, and we had 10% inflation year on year in the 70s. Yep. And then we had a huge reckoning with a, a huge recession and we had um, stagflation. It doesn't... It doesn't end well when you take political control of the RBA. But that's so we've been there, we've tried that, and it yeah, was terrible. It was terrible. And so it was the reforms of um of you know in that era of Hawke, Keating, Thatcher and Reagan mm. that sort of um you know these these reforms that sort of um ended a lot of those price controls and and um and things that, that were causing so much damage. But where, where politicians have just gone, let's just go for it and put our foot flat to the accelerator, that's when you get Venezuela or Zimbabwe and hyperinflation. Chris Hewitt um, says, according to Gina, assuming Gina Reinhardt, uh, we will be the Greece of the South. Uh, now, now, what's that? I don't know why I have trouble with this word all the time, but what's that word that talks about economic restraint, um, Raining spending back aggressively. Austerity. Austerity. That's what I think is, that's my personal opinion, I think austerity is the solution to the last two years, to all the, the drunken spending and borrowing and debt accumulation that generations of, uh, of future Australians have been robbed of uh, in advance without their permission. They're going to have to be paying back our spending over the last two years. Um, and instead of the government inflating the currency and continuing to pump print more money we should just be tightening our belt a heck of a lot and learning to do without um instead of thinking about all the extra ways the government can save us yeah well it's it's a lie when the, the government's greeks didn't like austerity <laughs> the greeks never really got actual austerity what the what was called austerity in greece was just um, we'll, we'll we'll keep deficit spending, but just not quite as much as we won't increase it by as much as we we promised we would, <laughs> but we'll still increase. You know wow. that's called austerity, um, but real austerity means actually cutting the size of government. Yeah, um, and John Howard cut government um, all government departments by ten percent, except for defence in the late nineties. Really, and we didn't have a recession. Wow. We, um, he, he cut the budgets of his government departments. But Did anybody die of starvation? No, no one died of starvation. In fact, the economy boomed. Um, but when the governments say everybody will, will get a bailout, no one will miss out, um, they're lying. Somebody's going to miss out. Now, who should, who should do the most belt tightening? The perpetrators of all of this economic damage or the victims? I think the mm -hmm. perpetrators... I think Canberra should bear the biggest brunt of any tightening of what does any that look like? that needs to happen. Sorry, what's that? What does that look like? Canberra tightening its belt. How does that not just reduce government services to taxpayers and, and the general public? Well, we want to put more in the hands of the actual honest people, the honest and productive people. We want Canberra to take less of what you earn and so that you've got more to spend 
uh, on what's important to you. Um, You're talking I'm, about Liberal Democrat policy being to reduce government spending overall and, and rein that in. It needs to be reined in. They, they can't yeah. keep adding. Otherwise, we, they, they're going to keep adding to the debt. It's not mm. just the government doesn't only have a trillion dollar deficit. They've got, uh, sorry, a trillion dollar debt, but they've got an ongoing year on year deficit as well. That's mm. just adding and growing that debt every single year because they can't live within their means. Yeah. What needs to happen urgently is for the government just to balance its budget. Do you remember back like 2010 um, in, or, and even leading up to the 2013 election, everybody was saying, we're the ones that will balance the budget. You can't yeah. trust the other party. Wayne no, Swan's, Wayne Swan's, uh, Wayne Swan's nailed to the mast. Yeah, Wayne Swan's elusive surplus, never, always promised, never delivered. But then Joe Hockey was the same. He said, we will deliver a, a surplus in our first year of office and every year after that. But the Liberal Party has also failed to ever deliver a surplus. Um, oh, the debt has just instead. ballooned on them both. Um, I, this has been the case since 2010. It's just been yes. going up and up and, and up. But that urgently needs to happen, that the government just stops adding to the debt. We, it might take 10 or 20 years to pay it off. But as long as they just stop adding to it by um, cutting the government waste. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that pensioners have to pay or that, um, you know, we, we, like usually when when you say to, the, to a government department, um, how can you, um, you know, what can be saved, what can be cut here? Of course, they're always going to pick on the most important and, and thing to voters, right? If you ask mm -hmm. the defence department, um, is there any waste that we could cut? They could say, yeah, we'll just abolish the Navy. Yep. It, you know what I mean? It, it, and if you ask um, the government, is there anything that, that we could we could cut? Uh, yeah, let's just let let's just let old people um, let's just cut let's, you know let's just let old people have nothing. the old age pension. The, yeah, the old age pension that can go. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. just to scare people, right? The, the, yep. the, that that um, people will just pick on the most sensitive thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but look, Canberra is the richest city in Australia. The house prices there are the you know the highest of any. The median salary is the highest of anywhere. Rent is crazy. Um, uh, but they can afford it, right? Because they're yep. all working for the government. They're all they're all yeah. on the gravy train. What civil servants get is is you know more than the prime minister, and it's just ridiculous. I mean, some civil servants, obviously not the lower rungs on the ladder. Let's go to a couple of comments. Um, Suad says, when a nation's values are reduced to just economic ones, like in Australia, it ceases to become a nation. Yeah, well, we're talking about economics tonight, but it's certainly not the only values. Um, uh, but uh, as social conservatives, uh, sometimes the only thing we talk about is social values, um, and uh, unlike the economic conservatives who are only concerned about economics uh, and end up being progressives in the Liberal Party. Uh, we need to be concerned about both uh, responsible economic management, eliminating uh, wasteful spending and, and inefficiencies. Uh, and we also need to be worried about uh, justice, righteousness, morality and liberty in the nation as well. Sue and Dean says, the uh, mining giants pay minimal tax in Australia due to their offshore lending slash borrowing from their overseas branches view offshore uh, tax havens. Likewise, huge companies like Amazon, Facebook, Apple, etc. pay zero GST and minimal, if any, income tax on profits due to their overseas infrastructure. 
if all overseas companies who operated in Australia paid GST and the correct rates of tax, how much better off would we be? How is it still possible that these overseas giant still rip blinds out um, and dot, dot, dot? So the, com the comment might have been a lot longer and just didn't fit um, on, on the program tonight. Um, Mark Hornshaw, I was uh, talking with Topher Field just a few hours ago and um, just asked him, you know, what kind of um, things are you hearing from your comments and, and content that you see on the internet, uh, which amounts to economic misinformation? And uh, he said one of the things he's had to explain a lot recently is this concept of tax the companies properly. And uh, Liberal Democrat policy is to reduce the company tax rate uh, and people are worried that that means companies are going to be paying less tax. Um, is that the case? And, and if not, how does that actually work, that reducing the tax rate doesn't necessarily reduce revenue? Yeah, great question. And um, just on that, that, that Facebook comment from before, every um, government says, like a, an easy target is to say these multi-billion dollar tax dodgers, um, this is kind of a common refrain. Don't worry, we don't need to tax you. We'll just tax those multinational tax dodgers. And right. but, then, but 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 it never actually amounts to anything, right? There there isn't actually any ways that they can tax foreign companies any more than they're currently doing. And so this is just a talking point that just goes on and on and on forever. It's not like the Liberal Party or the Labor Party didn't try, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, so, um, but what? The Liberal Democrats' policy is a 20% um, flat tax, so a $40,000 tax-free threshold for, um, um, for earnings, and then a 20% flat tax after that, easy accounting, and 20% company tax, but only on profits that are taken either overseas or, or in Australia that are taken home as earnings, and no tax on reinvested profits. So profits that are used to expand the business and employ more people, um, we want companies to do that. And, and this is an area where it will help small businesses more than large, because a large business, let's say Woolworths, if they want to build a new shopping center, they can easily just borrow $100 million because everybody knows Woolworths. Everybody knows they're yeah. profitable. Um, they can just float bonds and they can easily borrow money. But a small business, if you've ever been in business, you know it's so hard just to get an overdraft. It's so hard to get a, a small business loan and you pay a high interest rate if you do. So a small business needs to grow through reinvesting profits, but they've already been taxed at 30% or 28 or close to it. Yep. If your profits have already been taxed, you can only put then 70% of it into growing the business. Yep. Um, so we want no tax on reinvested profits. And then when that expansion becomes profitable, well, it'll, it'll still be taxed because those profits will then be taken. Ultimately, the owner will want to take home some profits, right? Yeah. And when they do, then it will be taxed uh, at 20% along with their other income. Yeah. Uh, but no tax on reinvested profits. Now, what will, that, what will that do for Australia? Well, we'll be the tax haven. It'll be the Irish government complaining that Amazon and Google and things aren't paying enough tax over there because they're coming to Australia instead. Yep. We'd rather be um, the one at the moment. We have one of the highest um, company tax rates in the OECD. So one of the highest of, of, of you know sort of 
wealthy or, or Western countries. And so, of course, companies would rather report their profits somewhere else than here um, so that they can um, avoid our punitively high tax rates. But if now, our tax rate was lower... Me, yeah. Sorry, just um, explain to me why somebody like these mega companies who obviously can go anywhere they want in the world, why do they go to Ireland with a 12% tax rate when they could go to some of the other tax havens which are much lower, like uh, 10, 8, 6, 5%, like Seychelles or, or other way, other places? Well, they do that too. Um, but what what companies will do is they'll, they'll, with their internal accounting, they'll attribute costs to their different offices in different countries and they'll attribute a high cost in a place where they don't want to earn a profit and a low cost in a place where they do want to earn a profit uh, to report it to pay less tax. But Ireland is a place where they can where they can have a head office, say, and employ IT people and customer service people, people who speak English, um, where they can't necessarily get a workforce in the Cayman Islands or something like that. There's just not enough people there. Um, so they might report some profits at an even lower company rate in the, in the Cayman Islands, but Ireland is a good compromise <laughs> where there's, right. there's a so low there tax in the workforce. There are attractions that Australia offers which um, make us competitive with places that will offer far lower company tax rates, um, but we aren't so attractive that we can get away with a, a nearly 30% tax rate on, on companies. Exactly. If the tax rate was 20% and we've got nice beaches and we've got a good, well-trained workforce, um, then a lot of companies will want to set up here. Right. And so people say, how do we get manufacturing back to Australia? Well, you get it back by having a lower cost for manufacturing, lower taxes. We have a lower cost of energy yep. by scrapping renewable energy targets and, and the net zero and things like that and just allowing a free market in energy. Uh, and deregulating the cost of doing business, so, so through cutting red tape um, so that there's, you know, less people's efforts are taken up in sort of compliance work. You know, they say, why are we getting, um, why is productivity falling? Well, workers aren't getting less productive, but more for every worker that's producing things, more and more workers are tied up with compliance, right, with, with just doing um, very um, seemingly unnecessary paperwork yep. to comply with various rules. If we had less red tape, there'd be less of a drain on business that way. If we had lower energy costs, less of a drain that way. If we had lower taxes, we'd attract manufacturing to Australia without the government subsidising anything. It's not like I oh, will tax you so that we can subsidise this high-cost, unprofitable manufacturer. No, just get the government out of the way again yeah. Um, so that, you know, businesses will go where the benefits are highest and the costs are lowest. Yep. Mark, let's, um, I, I guess, an hour of economics might be getting to be a bit, bit much for everybody. So let's bring it to an end. If you can summarise for us what we've talked about tonight and, and put it into just a couple of sentences, the, the Reader's Digest version of what inflation is, uh, why government shouldn't in, interfere in, in prices of mortgage rates and, and other things, and, and what the best way is to make sure that uh, the average Australian has the most room for flourishing in the next five to 20 years. 
Well, that's a big ask. <laughs> but as I say, inflation... Just, just what we've talked about tonight again for us, please. Yeah, yeah. Inflation is not just because a business wanted to put up the price or something. That, that's, that's just, you know, a silly scare tactic. Inflation is because the money supply was expanded and it was fun while it was happening for people that owned assets, but people that didn't own assets just missed out. And so inflation is insidious. Inflation is theft, as Dave said right at the start of the show, because by the government um, creating more money, they create for themselves the means to buy stuff, but they're taking that from other people, from anyone else that owns money. So where the government gets something for nothing, the rest of us that share this world with the government get nothing for something. And so inflation is insidious. It, it um, needs to be stamped out. But the only way to stamp out inflation is for the government to stop inflating, that is, stop expanding the money supply. But when they do, that's, that's, there's going to be a reckoning. It's going to mean interest rates rise to something closer to their natural level. When they're at their natural level that balances the interests of savers and borrowers, um, if it was left like that untouched, we wouldn't have this boom-bust cycle. Yep. But since we've had a boom, there's going to be a bust. It's not that someone wants there to be a... It's not that some scary person told you, vote for me and we'll bust the economy. No, no. People are telling you, vote for me and everything will be fine, but they're lying. Right? There's going to be a reckoning. There has to be. When the government's got something for nothing, other people have to get nothing for something. And we're seeing that now as prices rise and we'll see it more as interest rates rise and it's going to be rough. But since there is going to be um, belt tightening, the people who most ought to tighten their belt are the people who put us into this mess. Mm. And that's the Canberra regime. They're the ones who ought to tighten their belts the most. Um, and so we want to reduce the um, government spending. Something has to reduce, either their spending or yours. Well, it ought to be theirs. Yeah, no, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. Chris Hewitt says, so election promises equals inflation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, look, and I, I think one of the things I've said for a long time is when voters are motivated by their own hip pocket and the benefits to themselves, uh, that's when we get a predatory government that just makes promises and uh, tells you what you want to hear and puts money in your pocket, pats you on the head and says, vote for me, give me more power. And that's how we have government ever increasing in power and size because we, we keep wanting government to give us more, do more for us. We're essentially taking pocket power out of our pockets and putting it into theirs and expecting cash in return. And that's a short-term mirage of, of hope because what you're actually getting is the government we've had for the last two years, which is far bigger than is good for anybody's health, um, far more authoritarian and invasive in, every, in part of everybody's life. So if you're a freedom voter watching this tonight, stop thinking about your pocket. Stop thinking about a cheap mortgage. Stop thinking about uh, a comfortable life. and Start being a bit patriotic. Start having some Christian love for your neighbour and start thinking about what's good for them. And what's good for them is less government, less interference in their wallet, less interference in their health, 
uh, less interference in where they can invest their superannuation if they even have to invest it at all, less uh, interference in what they inject in their body and 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 if they're allowed to go more than five kilometres from their house and if they're allowed to go to church, you know, the, the interference we've had, uh, you know, this digital privacy bill that the government's proposing right now, utterly ridiculous. Why would you want more government controlling more aspects of your life. Uh, and if you believe the sales pitch, um, I have a bridge in Sydney that's really wonderful that I can sell you. Uh, it, it's just insane. We, we also have a government bill right now um, on the table, which is uh, going to punish uh, big tech if they don't censor us enough. Like, are you kidding me? These are the policies which a big government um, and that is why we need to be thinking about our nation and our neighbours when we vote and, and not just about ourselves. Um, this is economics, it's human behaviour, it's morality. Um, this is uh, super, super important. Uh, Chris says, that's why I voted for Pauline yesterday. Um, look, the, the Freedom Parties are, are all good. Um, they definitely need to be put up there. And um, I had four different candidates on last week one from One Nation, one from Lib Dems, one from um, UAP, and one from uh, the Australian Values Party. And honestly, if I was in each of their electorates, I would vote for each of them because uh, parties and platforms aside, those guys were quality. Uh, they really understood the policies their parties were offering. They really understand the bigger issues at play. They're not just random folks that a party grabbed with a shepherd's crook and dumped into the seat. They're actually quality candidates and quality conservatives, uh, genuine small government people. Um, that's what I, I want to encourage voters to be looking for, not just the parties. Yeah, we, we, we're talking about parties and, and policies and, and economics and, and big concept things here tonight. Um, but in your choice, in your electorate, make sure you're looking at the individuals as well as, as those things. Um, Kesho has a little uh, slogan here. says, society reaps what Schwab sows. Um, so uh, that's a response to uh, freedom over tyranny saying society reaps what it sows. Um, yeah. And you know what? I, I actually believe what freedom said. Um, Mark, I've been, I've been saying for a while that the real solution to fixing Australia isn't changing the seal of the Commonwealth or restoring the 1901 Constitution and expecting uh, the voters in Australia to be suddenly moral and, um, uh, and liberty-focused instead of authoritarian. What we actually need is a repentance of heart, a humbling of our heart where we actually realise that our culture is totally messed up. Um, and that we ourselves are not the highest authority in the universe uh, because that's what we've elected. It's politicians who think they're the highest authority in the universe yeah. and they're completely unaccountable to anybody. Um, yeah. It's that kind of cultural renewal uh, and revival, which, which I think is going to make a lasting and, and a generational change um, to the nation. Yeah. And, you know, Jesus said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Like you've been saying, Dave, that, that, mm. that you know, whether it's ScoMo or whether it's Klaus Schwab or whether it's anyone who wants to centrally plan and rule the world, they want to exercise authority. 
right? They want their top-down plan. Um, but it will not be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you will be a servant. Right? And, and, um, and also the Bible says um, God puts the lonely in families. So something else we need to look out for mm. is each other, right? The, 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 the family and, and society. And people, society is you and me and the other person interacting, working together, honest and productive people looking out for one another. And, and um, you know, like perfect religion is that you take care of widows and orphans and keep yourself unspotted from the world, that, you, that we need to look out for each other. And especially if we are moving into a time where there's going to be economic hardship. Right. And as you've been saying, Dave, you can't look to the people that got us into the mess to get us out of it. So who do we look to? Well, we yep. need to look look out for each other and we need to yep. care for the vulnerable. And that means that doesn't mean we need to write a letter to Canberra saying you need to care for the vulnerable. It means we need to do it ourselves. Yes. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, I, I recorded a video today, wrote and recorded a video in response to that uh, social media post going around uh, which says, I'm not pro-murdering babies, I'm pro-Emily, Stephanie, you know, and, and this other um, propaganda guff. Uh, and there's a couple of items in there where they talk about uh, women who are economically vulnerable and wanting an abortion for, for social pressure reasons, uh, poverty um, or, or high school, etc. cetera. Um, and, and as well as saying there's never a good reason for murdering your baby, uh, including that, um, I make the point, you know what, sometimes we, in fact, too often, we, communities and congregations, do fail these women and we are the solution. Mm -hmm. Now, those failures notwithstanding, there's still no reason for murdering your children. Um, but in that same acknowledgement, um, we are the solution. We shouldn't be looking to the government to solve um those problems because not everything should be solved by government. Uh, you know, abortion vulnerable women should anticipate support and and uh, congratulations from a community that will will help them and not leave them alone to to struggle. If you know, if the question was put, do I let my current kids starve because I've had another one, or do I kill my another one? I mean, that shouldn't be a question any woman should even have to think about. Because yeah. community and, and congregations, I mean, let's us Christians take responsibility for this, that no woman would ever think that that was an option um, in our community. Uh, that's certainly something we should. And, and I don't want to shirk that off to government to solve. Yeah. I mean, our great-grandparents' generation um, of like 100 years ago, basically, you know, all of this kind of rot, I mean, you could always pick a date. But it's really been since World War One. That's that, and since the 1913, the creation of the Federal Reserve, that's really been the era of, of big government, um, of income tax. I mean, before World War One, there was no income tax, and yet people were formed friendly societies, and there was still welfare. There was still a social yeah. safety net. Yeah. Um, but it was provided by people in community. Um, yeah, I've had a good conversation with about that. It's a, it's a good clip I should um, resurrect and, and show again. Yeah. And when, when, when the social safety net is provided by real people who you know, then you can't get away with um, just um, 
abusing it, right? Because right. You, you're right. looking at your next door neighbor in the eye and saying, you know, could you help out? Yep. And they know who you are, and they, yep. and they know, and they know, and, and you have to be polite, and you have to be a good neighbor yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and good. so, uh, um, when as the government has taken over all of these functions, then even you know the, the big charities, sadly, are just now into political lobbying, yeah, um, rather than what what how they started out. As yeah. um, uh, you know, as grassroots organisations providing actual charity. Yeah. Um, Chris Hewitt asks: Is it legal to talk someone out of abortion? Um, short answer is yeah, yes. Um, there are um, exclusion zones around abortion clinics in Queensland and Tasmania and and Melbourne and and various other states um, where it's illegal to even pray quietly silently by yourself uh within 50 100 150 meters of an abortion clinic and and that is an absolute tyranny uh and oppression um but yeah it, it's not like uh the conversion therapy laws um, in some states uh, you certainly should offer support uh to a, an abortion vulnerable woman and um, ask you know how you can help uh, and just make them aware of things or even just show them the video i'm about to release tomorrow which um will uh, do that uh, kesho adds it's harder than asking the government to take your neighbor's car for you i'm not sure what you mean by that kesho you want to make a guess at that mark i don't know but I'm not sure what's harder than asking the government to take your neighbour's car, but um, I think you might have been talking about the friendly societies, benevolent societies that you mentioned before, uh, and the the face to face accountability that those relationships do. Yeah, well, if you if, if you're just a name on the Centrelink list, yeah, there's no there's no mutual obligation there, is there? You can just yep. turn up and and so you can you're just on the list. Yep. If you're if if you're literally asking your next door neighbour for charity, and yet and yet you're just um, you know honking the horn and revving the engine, and um, you're asking for charity, but you've got a big V8, and you uh, <laughs> you know what I mean, and and Taking you're just a neighbour. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe the, maybe they'll say, look, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm helping someone else at the moment. Um, yeah. But the neighbour on the other side, who's always been there for 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 other neighbours and has always been um, a good neighbour and has genuinely fallen on hard times and when they ask for help it's sure I'll help yep. Um, yep. and so when uh, or if someone is is coming to your church say um, for help the church will help them but will the will the church put them on permanent welfare for the next twenty years generation no probably they'll yep. say look it's would you be able to just help out? Uh, would you be able to mow the church lawn, or would you be able to help us um, deliver these um, groceries to some old people? Or yeah. is, is there some way that you could help in this charity service, rather than just as a recipient? Yeah. And and a, a, a genuine person would want to do that, right? A genuine person would say, "Yeah, I'd love to be involved in the actual delivery of this charity service, yep. and it will help me get work experience and uh, and so on." 
Whereas an obnoxious person who just says, give me the money and shut up. Well, <laughs> anyway, so, so private charity has a much better feedback loop than, yeah, um, yeah. than, than government. And better dignity, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, Mark Hornshaw, thank you so much for your time and, and your insights tonight. Looking forward to a chat with you about education policy uh, that we could be looking at as part of this. It's probably not the, the most pressing issue in this federal election, but it is a pressing issue. Freedom is, is right up there. But you know what? With the government indoctrination centres that used to be called schools, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the woke activism that goes on in those places, we, we need to be looking uh, with fresh eyes at uh, how we can reinvent um, education policy in Australia. So let's have another chat about that in the next two weeks before people cast their vote. Um, yeah. I do encourage you to put your vote off as long as possible, people, because you, you need as much information as possible, even if it's just to decide whether you go 123 or 231 or, or 132 in, in those freedom parties at the top of your ballot. Um, but you know what? There's policy announcements and other things that will happen in the next two weeks. Uh, just put off your vote as long as you can. Early voting should only be used uh, for people who really can't vote on, on polling day. So some opinions go. Uh, more information uh, is helpful. Mark, thank you uh, so much for your time tonight. Where can people uh, find more from your thinking and, and uh, information? Uh, well, if you're interested in the Liberal Democrats, um, and we've, we've had our policies out since last year, um, no shock announcements on election day, no, <laughs> no handouts, no, no bribes from us. We've had our Freedom Manifesto out since uh, like about October or something. Um, you can just go to ldp.org.au, ldp.org.au, and you can find our Freedom Manifesto there. Um, if you're a voter in line, then um, I'd That's be... That's on the north coast of New South Wales? North coast of New South Wales. Then um, um, I'd gladly accept your number one vote. That would be great. Uh, if you want to see some other articles by me um i've written a few things at the foundation for economic education fee.org if you look up my name there at fee.org you'll see um, some things by me or you could just get in touch by email dave could i put my um email address somehow on this on the show notes or something like yeah, that just, uh, well let me let me uh, do it now i'll put it on the screen um mark mark.hornshaw Horn Shaw. Yep. At, at ldp.org.au. Okay, we'll put that on right now because uh, there's a few different places for you to put it as a comment later. Uh, there it yep. is on the screen right now. Mark.hornshaw at ldp.org.au. Said out loud for the benefit of those people on the podcast. Um, can I get you to uh, maybe think about contributing, contributing a podcast or two to the Good Source platform uh, in uh, weeks and months to come? Um, you could talk me into it. Yeah, <laughs> about some ideas. But certainly about education and home education, a lot of people during the lockdown, especially, were and especially those who didn't want their kids to be vaxxed, and and there was palpable fear that the vax bus was just going to turn up and do it without the parents' knowledge. Um, um, and so a lot of people at that time were becoming overnight home educators. Yeah. And saying, so what do we do? And um, finding out that it's not quite as simple as they thought. 
yep. people wanting to start micro schools or home education co-ops and, and also teachers who'd been sacked thinking this might be an opportunity for me to find re-employment. We're also finding that, that the regulation around schools just made that almost impossible. Wow. So um, yeah, I'd love to have that chat as well. Brilliant. Okay, we will do that, make that happen. Uh, Mark Hornshaw, uh, thank you very much tonight. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been great fun. Um, that's Mark Hornshaw, uh, economics lecturer at uh, the University of Notre Dame and uh, somebody who's correcting the misinformation of, uh, I guess, voters around Australia now as well. He's also a candidate and one of the policy writers for the Liberal Democrat Party. Uh, now, if you would like to support The Good Source, please head to goodsource.news, click on the button that says support or just add forward slash support after the URL goodsource.news forward slash support. Uh, we can put that on the screen too, I'm pretty sure. Or you can go to davepello.com and um, become a, a supporter there. Um, that's it for this evening. Uh, don't forget there is this video coming out tomorrow to deal with the, the really disgusting propaganda um, that has, has come out from some other person that's been shared like 100,000 times or more on, on Facebook um, to do with uh, somebody claiming that they're not pro-murdering babies, but then she goes ahead and outlines about 10 to 20 different scenarios where it's totally fine to murder a baby. Uh, so I don't even know how she can lie straight in bed with, with uh, dishonesty like that. But um, that's coming out tomorrow. Make sure you subscribe to my personal Facebook page, uh, Dave Pello, and um, and my YouTube channel as well. Uh, we'll put it there, and I'll probably put it on the Good Source website as well. This is really important information to get out there because uh, I just don't know how anybody can be pro-abortion in this day and age. Um, you're either anti-science or you're a radical sociopath, um, and I don't think there's any other explanation for a uh, person who justifies the killing of living humans. It's uh, worse than slavery. Um, anyway, that's it. If you don't like the fact that I'm anti-abortion, suck it up, go elsewhere. Don't really care. Um, that's me. Take it or leave it. That's the end of Pillow Talk tonight, and I hope that uh, you enjoyed it, you were challenged by it, uh, equipped and uh, built up by it. Uh, thank you for watching and good night. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.